Hey, good morning, you guys. Back in September, we hosted our dream team party. How many of you guys were there? You were part of that dream team party? Okay, uh, a bunch of you guys were. Awesome. If you weren't there, we want to tell you a little bit about it, and you'll see why in just a sec. We titled this, or we themed this party, The Night of the Golden Unicorn. And the reason that we called it the Night of the Golden Unicorn is that we had heard as pastors that the idea of a dream team, a volunteer group that serves week in and week out on Sundays, that they do it with joy, that they do it with gladness, that they're dependable, they do it without pay. I mean, we had heard that that sort of team existed, but we weren't totally sure. It was kind of like this mythical idea that some church planters talk about, and we're like, man, I hope we end up with one of those teams. And 100 we have ended up with that kind of team here at Connect Church. Our dream team is amazing. Amber and I said to ourselves, it's like God sent us not just one unicorn, but a whole herd of unicorns, you guys. And so we wanted to celebrate them. We rented out a restaurant here in Calgary, and then we got dressed up real fancy. We went and had a dinner. It was free for everybody who showed up. We gave out awards, which were pretty sweet, I have to admit. They had all sorts of like Uh, serious awards and goofy awards. We gave out like the Balzac Community Service Award, you know? Balzac is the little unincorporated Rocky View County place you're in right now. Um, And that went to the person that was most helpful overall at Connect. And I believe, if I remember right, that was Kim Roman. She was awesome. We gave out the Terrifically Tardy Award. That was to the person who, like, despite their best efforts, could never show up on time, you know? It was a loving award. This person was glad to see it. It was Ace, who often plays bass for us, by the way. The fact that Ace plays bass, it just makes me happy, right? We gave out the best dressed award, like whoever looks the snazziest on Sunday. I did not win that. Uh, Simone won that, if I remember correctly, because she's always looking fantastic. So we gave out all these cool awards. And at the end of the night, we actually did a drawing for everybody who serves on our dream team that was there that night for a free night at the Banff Fairmont Hotel. And so one of our dream teamers walked away with a night on us out in the mountains in one of the nicest places you could ever imagine staying. Now, look, let me just pause for a moment and ask you, why are you not on the dream team? Seriously, you think it's just about showing up and serving for an hour and you're like, oh, I got to be there early and all that. I promise you, it'll be one of the best parts of your week. Now, for this dream team party, somehow or another, you guys, I was put in charge of baking and decorating 150 unicorn cookies that we were serving. (laughs) Guys, I don't understand how I got this job. I don't understand. I just, I said, hey, what do you need me to do? And they said, decorate cookies. I've never done that before, but okay, I'll decorate cookies. And so we made these super rad unicorn cookies to keep it on theme, you know, and all this stuff. Obviously, that's not my hand in the picture. My, my nails are not that fancy. No, I worked with a team of ladies and they said, okay, Dan, we're going to deal with the making of the dough and cooking them and baking them and cutting them and all that stuff. We want you to get over here and decorate. And I was like, cool, let's make that happen. And so I started working. And to be really honest with you guys, it didn't last long, okay? Those ladies pulled me off of that pretty quick because despite the fact that I was working as hard as I could, I was doing my absolute best, I'm not particularly artistic. And so the cookies, they didn't look good. Okay, these were not cookies that you wanted to serve to people that you were honoring. They were like, you know, unappetizing. The frosting was uneven and drippy. I kept breaking off the little horns 
to the cookies, those are really fragile. And apparently I'm not, I, I don't have a deft enough touch. And so I kept breaking off the horns so that the theme of the night was apparently like Night of the Golden Stallion instead of Night of the Golden Unicorn, which is cool in its own right. But I'm afraid people might have got the wrong idea what kind of party this was going to be, all right? And so pretty quickly, the, pretty quickly, the ladies pulled me off and they said, okay, Dan, you gave it a good try. Why don't we move you over here to the cookie cutting station? And so I was moved around to this side. And the cool thing was I crushed it when it came to cutting out cookies. It was so easy, right? When they give you a cookie cutter, all you have to do is just stamp, 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 stamp. Oh, that one didn't turn out right? Okay, ball it up, mash it flat, stamp, stamp, stamp. It was like I made dozens and dozens and dozens of perfectly formed unicorn cookies. They were all consistent in their shape. They were the perfect thickness. They had the same look, one right after the other. You couldn't tell one unicorn cookie from the other unicorn cookies because they were that primo of cutouts, you guys. I might have found my new calling. I'm serious now. I might actually start a side hustle baking unicorn cookies because I was that good at cutting them out. Now, The thing that was good about that was that I was getting consistency out of all of these cookies, right? Stamp, perfect shape. Stamp, perfect size. Stamp, perfect consistency. Stamp, they all look the same. It was wonderful. But the things that we value in cookies are the very same things that we hate in our own lives. The idea of absolute consistency, the idea of boring sameness, one after another after another. We don't want those to be the descriptors of our lives, do we? Nobody wants a cookie-cutter life. Nobody wants their marriage to look like everybody else's marriage. Nobody wants to feel like they're working the same job or the same kind of job as everybody else. What's the point? I'm just a cog in the machine, and if I were to fall out of place, somebody else could jump right in. Nobody wants to believe that they are simply repeating the same pattern that they see everybody else repeating around them. It's like there's a sense within you and me that we were created for something more, isn't there? It's like we know deep down inside of us that we were put here not to be like everybody else, Not to have a stamped out life that follows the exact same pattern as our sister and our neighbor and our coworker and on and on it goes, but that we were put here in order to make a difference. That is to break the mold that every other person seems to be stamped into so that our lives in the long run will matter. Now, I've got good news for you. If you've ever had that sense, if you've ever felt that way about your life, I have good news because that, that sense, that feeling that we all have deep down inside of us, that we were created for more than what we've settled for, that actually comes from God. It was placed by God inside of you. God does not want you to settle for a cookie-cutter life. He doesn't want you to follow the same pattern that every other person on the planet follows. In fact, God wants you to break the mold. 
So for the next month, for every Sunday in November, we're going to be talking about how that happens. We're starting a new series called The Art of Being Unordinary. And the reason that we're calling it that is because there is this sense that we should be extraordinary, that our lives should be beyond typical, that we shouldn't just be living par for the course, but that we should be accomplishing things that genuinely matter in the long run. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about how that comes about in our lives. We want to make sure that if we get six, seven, eight, five, whatever the number is, if we get a set number of decades that those decades matter, that we break the pattern that everybody else is repeating around us, that we would have a God-sized vision for our lives. Last Sunday was Vision Sunday here at Connect. We talked about the vision for where our organization is going. This whole month, we're going to be talking about the vision that God has for your life individually and how you can live it out. Now, we're going to start this morning in a passage that you might be familiar with. It also might be a passage, a a section of verses that you've never heard before. So we're going to go a bit slow through it. It's Romans chapter number 12. Now, before I read this, I want to tell you guys the truth about these verses. There are a lot of theologians, there are a lot of Bible scholars that say this is the densest section of verses in the densest book of the Bible. That is, if somebody came to me and they said, hey, Dan, I want to start reading the Bible. I don't know where to begin. I'm not going to send them to Romans first because Romans is long. There are lots of sections of really deep theology. It's a beautiful, wonderful, powerful book, but there's a lot to it. And so we're only going to read two sections out of it this morning, and I promise you we're going to barely scratch the surface of what is in these verses. You're going to be sitting there, and there are going to be surface uh, questions rather that surface in your head as you read this, and I'm not going to have time to address all of them, unfortunately. If you're a Christian and you're familiar with this passage, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, he totally skimmed over this word there that needs to be brought out and developed, and people need to hear it. And you're right. I am going to have to do that because there just isn't enough time. So it's a dense section, but we're going to go slowly through it. There are a lot of threads that we can pull out, but we're going to focus on one and one only, the one that is going to lead you to understand how to break the mold, how to be unordinary and then extraordinary Monday through Sunday in your life. All right, here we go. Romans chapter number 12, verses 1 and 2. The scripture says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... To offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your good and proper. Some translations say this is your spiritual act of worship. And he says in verse 2, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good pleasing, and perfect will. Now, part of the reason I love these verses so much is that it really does speak to everybody. Again, if you're here and you wouldn't say, you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, you're like, "Ah, I don't know about this whole thing. These verses actually speak your language. If you've ever had the sense that your life is just being molded and shaped in the same way that everybody else is, and you want to break out, you want to accomplish more in your life, then it speaks your language. It says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but instead be transformed. That's going to be important here in just a moment. If you are a believer 
If maybe you're a saint, you're like, man, I've been doing this a long time, Dan, longer than you've been alive. The great news is this verse speaks to you as well. If you ask questions like, how do I know what God's will is? And when Christians, by the way, when we talk about God's will, what we're saying is, what is God's plan? What is his plan for me, for my family, for my work, whatever it might be? If you've ever asked, like, what is God's will? How do I know what God's will is? The answers are actually found in these two verses. It says, if you'll do what these two verses tell you to do, you will be able to test what is God's will. And that word test, it means to validate. It means to discern or recognize. So if you've ever had like three paths in front of you and you're like, I don't know which way I'm supposed to go, which one of these is God's perfect, pleasing, and good will for my life? If you do what these verses say, the Bible says you will have no trouble recognizing which one of these is God's will. And then it says you'll also be able to approve God's will in your life. That is, when you recognize what God's plan is for your life, for your family, for your career, whatever it is, you'll look at it and you won't go, oh, crap, this is not what I had in mind. Instead, if you'll do what these verses say, when you see God's will, it's like you'll pull out your rubber stamp. You're like, approved. I'm on for that. Yes, sign me up. So whichever side of the spectrum you fall on, these verses directly address your questions, your fears, your wonderings about who you are supposed to be in this life. Okay? Now, here's the thing. If you want to move from ordinary to extraordinary, you've got to pass through a land we're calling unordinary. That is that before you can get from here to there, you've got to go through a process. You've got to begin to do something in your life that most people will never do. It is a path that most people will never walk. And because of that, most people just end up ordinary. This path that God calls us to walk down, this, this spiritual act of worship that he calls us to, it is not easy, nor is it natural. Nobody does it by default. In fact, everybody pushes against this. Everybody tries to go the other way. We try to get out of this. God, is there any wiggle room? Are there any loopholes in this? Can I get around this so I can go from ordinary to extraordinary without doing the unordinary thing? This thing that Paul calls us to, I don't know if you caught it, it's an interesting little phrase there, two words, that should have piqued your interest. Maybe a red flag should have gone up, and you, as you saw this, as you read it, you're like, wait, that sounds weird. I'm not totally sure what he means there, and I'm not sure I'm, in, I'm on board for all of that, because the, the phrase that he uses, the path that he calls us to walk down in order to move from ordinary to extraordinary it's, first of all, paradoxical. You're like, no, wait, that doesn't even make sense. Second of all, it's frightening. I'm going to be real honest with you. It's not easy. It's a bit scary when you understand what these verses say is required of us to move from ordinary to extraordinary. The word that I want to highlight for you is, of course, or the phrase I want to highlight is, of course, living sacrifice. Did you catch that in the text? You probably did. It probably jumped out at you, and if not, that's okay. This phrase is strange. Like, 
I don't know if you know exactly everything that's involved in this phrase, living sacrifice, but right away, you're on edge. If you're skeptical, again, if you're here just checking things out, by the way, I'm glad you're here. You belong here. This is the kind of church that you should be in because we want to give you the whole teaching of the scripture. We want to do it in a way that makes sense, and then we want to give you the freedom to make up your own mind, okay? I'm never going to coerce you. I'm always going to consider you as we're preaching, as we design our ministries. This is the right kind of church for you. And some of you walked in this morning and you were like, you know, shoulders up like this and you walked in and you sat down and you didn't know how long this was going to go and you didn't know if people were going to be weird and awkward like Christians sometimes are. Somewhere in the back of your mind, you had a sense. You're like, I know at some point they're going to break out the Kool-Aid and they're going to ask me to drink. And right now when I talk about living sacrifices, you're like, are they stirring pitchers back there? Like what's going on here? I knew this was going to happen. All right, you might be tempted to hit the eject button at this point. This is such a strong phrase. This path that God calls us to walk on face, it seems so severe and difficult that you might just say, nah, I'm out. This is not what I want to be a part of if this is what Christianity is. Let me just beg you, please, for, track with me for another 15 minutes, okay? It's going to get worse but eventually it'll get much, much better. So stay with me, roll with me through this, argue with me in your head, that's totally fine. I've got no issues with that at all. Paul says, if you want to leave behind ordinary, if you want to break the cookie cutter mold and accomplish something meaningful in your life, you have got to offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God. My guess is, None of you guys have made any animal sacrifices this week. If you have, the police are on their way, okay? So this phrase, living sacrifice, like it might be a little confusing, might be a little bit of an oblique reference for us in the 21st century, but understand the people that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to, the the Roman and Jewish readers in the first century, they would have understood immediately what he was talking about. You see, in the Old Testament, in the period before Jesus was born, lived a perfect life, died on the cross and rose from the dead, in the period before that world-changing moment, The way that you worshiped God and the way that you atoned or paid for your sins, the wrongs that you did in this world, the way that you worshiped and atoned for your sin was that you had to make an animal sacrifice. This was the heart of the Jewish religion for a very long time. For thousands of years, this is what people did. But you couldn't just sacrifice any animal, right? You're like, I don't like cats. Take that one, right? You couldn't sacrifice any animal. There were... If you're a cat lover, I'm sorry, I'm a cat lover too. It was just a joke. If you wanted to make a sacrifice at the temple, there were certain standards that it had to follow. It had to be one of your own livestock. It had to be something that you personally owned or purchased from somebody else. This animal that you were going to sacrifice at the temple, it had to be healthy. There couldn't be any defects or problems with it whatsoever. So you couldn't be like, eh, that lamb is really sick and he doesn't walk very well. He's probably going to die anyway. So let's sacrifice that one. No, no, no. God wanted the very best. Literally in the book of Leviticus, God says, when you come to make a sacrifice, you need to give me your best animal, your most valuable animal, the one that has absolutely no defects, nothing wrong with it whatsoever. Now, in order to ensure that that happened, what people would often do is they would find the animal that they were going to later, you know, go to Jerusalem and sacrifice at the temple, 
and they would pull it from the herd. In some cases, they might even bring it into their home and let it live inside. I mean, it was a different time, right? You're not going to let a goat inside your house today, but it was a different time. And so they would bring in this animal. It would be there for months sometimes, all the while knowing that they were going to bring it to Jerusalem in order to offer it as a bloody sacrifice to God. When you were ready, you'd load that sucker up in a cart, you'd walk. Obviously, there was no mass transit, no planes. You would walk to Jerusalem, and when you got there, there would be a priest at the temple, and his job was to examine your sacrifice and to make sure that it fit the criteria that was laid out earlier in the Bible. That is, that it was the right species, it had no defects, it was very healthy, it was a valuable animal that you actually owned. And if it passed that approval process, then either you you or the priest would take a knife and let the animal die on the altar in the Jewish temple. They would take the carcass, they would throw it on a fire, and they would burn the whole thing. That is what people did in order to worship God, in order to pay for their wrongdoing for thousands of years and across all all sorts of different cultures. This wasn't just Jewish culture. This was also pagan Roman culture. Animal sacrifices were an everyday part of life. And in every instance, for thousands of years, when you got through with the process of offering a sacrifice, do you know what you ended up with? Something dead. That was it. It was dead. There was no going back. You couldn't use part of it. You couldn't eat any of it. It was a total offering of something that was alive and then ended up dead. Now, the reason that that phrase in Romans chapter number 12, verse number 1, is so interesting is because Paul says, when God calls you to offer yourself as a sacrifice, he's not talking about the typical Old Testament sacrifices. God isn't asking you to walk up to a temple, pull out, he's not calling you to do that. Instead, he uses this super weird phrase, living sacrifice. He says the sacrifice, the result of what you offer to God is not death, but it brings true life. It's important. It's not easy, but it is important. So let's talk a little bit more about this phrase, living sacrifice, and why Paul would use that. Of course, it's an oxymoron. It's a paradox. You can't have a living sacrifice. That's a living, dead thing. We call those zombies. They don't exist, right? You can't have a living, dead thing. And yet, this is precisely what Paul says we have to become if we want to leave behind ordinary and end up extraordinary. You have to become a living sacrifice. Now, understand, this does not mean that God wants you to give up your right to live. It means God wants you to give up your right to live however you want. God is not asking you to offer your life. He's not asking you to sell everything and move to Africa and become a missionary or anything like that. Instead, God is asking you to give up control of your life. You will live in a way that you never thought possible, but the way to get there is to become a sacrifice to God. This isn't a one-time thing, right? If you were going to atone for your sin in the Old Testament, it was a one-time thing. You would sacrifice this lamb only once. That's the only number of times you could sacrifice the poor little animal. 
And yet God here doesn't call us to a one-time sacrifice. He calls me and to you to a continuous and a constant dying to self and living to God. And this is not just like in this one place in the Bible. It's not like Paul was kind of a weirdo and he snuck in these one verses and nobody noticed until, you know, decades later. And they're like, well, it's in there now. I guess we've got to leave it. You will find this call to come and die so that you might truly live. You will find it throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament. Jesus himself said some very interesting words in the book of Matthew. Jesus, who, if you talk to most people in our world today, they're like, yeah, Jesus was basically a hippie. He was all about love. He spoke in soft tones to everyone. Basically, you do you. It's okay, right? That's the common picture of who Jesus is. He's approving and loving of everyone and everything, no matter what, at all times, in all places. And yet, when you read Matthew chapter number 16, do you know what you find that he says? It says here that Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus doesn't sound like a hippie here. He doesn't sound like he's like, hey, whatever you feel is good, go ahead and do it. It doesn't sound like that in in these words, that's for sure. People kind of gloss over these parts of Jesus' teaching. You know, they don't pay much attention to it. In fact, when you dig into this, for us, like the word cross, it's it's a piece of jewelry, right? It's a necklace, it's a chain that we wear, or it's a nice little decoration we put on our wall. That's what we think of when we think of a cross. But understand, in Jesus' day, the cross was an implement of torture, You understand, this is how the government executed criminals in Jesus' day. They would nail them to a cross and leave them there until they died. And so when Jesus says, you've got to take up your cross and follow me, it's not like put on a chain so that everybody will know you're a Jesus person. It literally means carry around an implement of death every moment of every day. If he were alive... In, you know, the Old Testament time, Jesus would say, take up your ceremonial knife, the thing that you use to sacrifice to God, and I want you to carry it around every day so you never forget what God is calling you to. If he were in the 21st century, Jesus would say, pick up your electric chair and come follow me. Carry around a syringe with all the lethal cocktails of drugs. And the reason is because he wants these very visceral, ugly metaphors to point us to the path that God calls us to walk. See, here's the thing. God really does want you to experience life abundant, life overflowing. The problem is you define that differently than God defines it. You define life abundant, life overflowing as money, 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 hot wife, well-behaved kids, biggest house on the block, CEO at the end of my business card. That's the way that you define life overflowing. And while you may have those things, the fundamental call of a Christian is much different. God calls you to offer your life as a living sacrifice to him. If you're on the fence, if you're not sure, then you've got a choice. You can say, no, I'm not interested in that. You can walk away. That's your choice. Again, I will never coerce you otherwise. I want to respect the same autonomy that God gives to you. However, if you want to become a follower of Jesus and you want to experience the abundant overflowing life that God promises to you, the way that you get there 
is to walk the path of a living sacrifice. Maybe we could sum it up like this, and this is a foundational truth to the Christian faith, that life in Christ is found in death to self. Life in Christ is found in death to self. And until that becomes a path that you are willing to walk, you cannot break the mold. See, the mold says you need to get. The mold of our world says you need to accomplish. The mold of our world says you need to look like this. And God says, no, I want you to break that mold. I want you to die to all of those stupid notions about what makes a life worth living. And instead, I want to show you what true life is all about. But it takes offering yourself as a living sacrifice. That life in Christ is found in death to self. Now look, that is a bitter pill, okay? I understand that. I do. This is not an easy thing. I wish I could give you like happy eight steps to perfect life in Jesus. I wish I could do that, but this is not what God calls us to as his followers. We are called to lay down our lives for the sake of others and the sake of his kingdom, okay? If you're here this morning, And you say, no way. Are you kidding? I didn't know this is what the Bible was all about. I didn't know this is what it meant to be a Christian. No way, I'm out. You're looking at your friend that invited you and you're like, you believe this stuff? Are you serious right now? Okay, if you're ready to, again, hit the eject button to walk out, you're like, I'm a self-made man. I'm not sacrificing myself to anything. If you're like, hey, I'm a strong, independent woman. I don't need no savior. Thank you very much. Like if you are in this... I'm serious though. If you're in that position this morning, then I get it. I understand that reaction. I had the same reaction the first time I heard it as well. But can I challenge you with a thought here? You are already a sacrifice to something. You've never thought about it in these terms, but you already sacrifice your life every day to the things that you think are valuable and important. Every day you are sacrificing your time. Do you realize time is the only resource you will never get more of? You can always earn more money. You can always get another husband. You can have more kids. The only resource you will never get more of is time. And every day you sacrifice your time for the things that you think are important. So you give 40 hours a week to your job. And that's a good thing, right? Everybody's got to eat and live indoors. No problems there. But when you sacrifice yourself over and over, when you give hour after hour after hour, the things that you're giving your time to are the things that you are sacrificing your life for. And so there will be people who sacrifice their life so that They have the opportunity to get, 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 to fill their pockets, to have the newest and shiniest toys, to get the most respect from people they don't even like. There are going to be people who will sacrifice their family for the chance to sleep with a coworker. There are people who are going to leverage debt. They're going to leverage themselves into all sorts of trouble so that they can get the things that they want. There are people that are going to sacrifice their emotional health so they can hold on to the anger and the bitterness they're carrying around. Every day, every one of us is offering our lives as a sacrifice to the things that we think are important. So the question is not, what am I, or if I'm going to be a sacrifice, the question is, who or what am I going to sacrifice for? I think if you want to break the mold, if you want to go from ordinary to extraordinary, you have got to decide, as the book of Romans puts it, I'm not going to be conformed by culture I'm going to be transformed by Christ. I'm not going to let everybody else tell me what my life should look like because in the end, they're all just cookie cutters. They're doing and saying the same thing one after another. Instead, I want to be transformed into something different, something bigger. 
So I refuse to be conformed. Maybe let's say that together. Just say it out loud even if you don't believe it right now. That's okay. I refuse to be conformed. I choose to be transformed. See, you can be folded and molded and shaped by the world, or you can be balled up by Jesus, and you can be cut out into a totally different shape altogether. You have the option to choose, but you will be conformed, or you will allow yourself to be transformed. The difference is found in 1 Peter chapter number 1. We're going to read this last verse, and we're done. This is the reason that I would be willing to lay down my life. This is the rationale for a room full of people that would say, I will die to self so that I can live to Christ. Let me read these verses. They are powerful, you guys. You better go ahead and wet your tongue, get ready to say amen. You've never said amen in church before, but go ahead and get ready because these verses are that awesome. The scripture says, for you know, that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down from your forefathers. That is, from the mold, the cookie-cutter stamp that everybody else is trying to force you into. The scripture says God didn't buy you back at a worthless price. Instead, you were bought back with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Do you see what the scripture does here? The scripture pulls back in that Old Testament animal sacrifice imagery and it says, look, all of those bloody, gruesome, gross sacrifices, they all pointed towards this one, the one that has the power to change everything. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but he was revealed in these last times for your sake. And I want you to listen to this last verse. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So now your faith and hope are in God. Do you know why the believers in the room would start saying amen to that passage? Do you know why this has the power to transform? Do you know why this section of verses has the ability to move you from like, no, I don't want anything to do with this, to like, I'm all in. I will die to self so that I can live to Christ. There are two principles I want to pull out. And I, these are huge these have the power to change everything for you. And they're taken directly from 1 Peter chapter number one. This passage tells us, first of all, that the difference between a living sacrifice and a dead sacrifice is the resurrected sacrifice. That without Jesus dying on your behalf, without Jesus reconciling you to God, you can spend your life on anything you think is important and in the end, you will end up dead just like everybody else. You will have nothing to show for it. Do you understand that if you die with two million in the bank, you're gonna leave it to your kids and grandkids, they're gonna blow it and it's like they never had it. If you become CEO of a company, a few generations from now, nobody's gonna remember that you were the CEO. If you had the nicest house on the block, nobody's going to remember. Listen, let me ask you this. What were your great, great grandparents' names? Do you know? You're literally here because of them, and 90% of us have no idea what their name was. 
You see, you can sacrifice your life to anything you want. It's your choice. Go do it. I don't care. But I want to challenge you to recognize that in the end, you'll be a dead sacrifice and nothing more. But because Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for you and for me to break the mold, to show us a new way of life, to give us a different path to walk down. Because he was the resurrected sacrifice, you can become a living sacrifice for him. Jesus is not dead. Jesus is alive. You do not have to die. You can live in God through Christ Jesus. Everything you need to know about why we are believers and Christians is not found in the law. It's not found in the rules. It's found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior of the entire world. One more point. God will never ask you to do something for him that he has not already done for you. Do you realize that? You're like, God, how could you be out there somewhere and looking at me and saying, you need to be a sacrifice for me. Give up your life. Say no to yourself. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. The truth is, God is not out there, some capricious judge, angry, waiting to squash you like a bug. Instead, the God of the Bible came down to earth in the person of Jesus. And every single thing that he asks of me and you, he endured in Jesus. That is, God has done for you already everything that he is asking you to do for him. When God says, I want you to love, he's not some God up there saying, you better love him or I'm going to get you. Instead, the scripture says, God so loved the world. The scripture says that God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When God asks you to love the unlovable, when he asks you to love the people that are difficult, it's because he already loves me. And I'm, I'm difficult, I'm unlovable, and so are you. When God says, I want you to endure temptation, I want you to deny yourself, I want you to say no to the things that would be pleasurable, the things that you think would make you happy, the things that would make your life extraordinary in your mind. When he calls you to do that, understand, he's already done that for you. Jesus came to earth and he could have been like, what's up, I'm King Jesus, worship me. He didn't do that. He was born as a baby in a, in a stable. He didn't have any power or authority. People killed him. And when he was tempted, the scripture says in the book of Hebrews that he was tempted in every single way that we are tempted and yet he is without sin. When that happened, God did for us the same things he's asking us to do for him. We could go on and on and on. But the reason that I'm willing to offer my life for God is because God's already given his life for me. The reason I'll say no to myself is because, A, myself is not very good, but B, because God actually denied himself so that I could have a relationship with him. My goodness, you guys, this call to come and die, it is on face I understand a bitter pill. But when you understand who God is, and you understand what Jesus did for you, it's more than enough to move us from ordinary cookie cutter, I'm seeking my own good and all the things that the world tells me I should have, and instead to move us to something truly transformative. 
You can walk out of these doors this morning and you can continue to be conformed by the culture, shaped and molded by all of the forces and people around you, or you can choose to allow yourself to be transformed into something completely new in Jesus Christ.